The text for the sermon this day is taken from the gospel lesson. And I'm going to read that again. It says, these are the words of Jesus from the parable. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Whenever I read that text or I hear it, there's some part of my brain where I am sitting there thinking, well, thank you that I am not like that Pharisee. I mean, look at that Pharisee pointing out the problems of the tax collector. Now, if you're wondering, in the first century, the reason tax collectors were hated was not because they collected taxes. It was because of whom they collected taxes for. See, the, ta the, the tax collectors typically were Jews... And they were collecting taxes for the Romans. So in other words, they're collecting money from their own people to give the money to the enemy. The word that we use for those type of people is traitor. And to make matters worse, they typically took more than they were supposed to. So tax collectors were known as traitors and thieves. That is why they were hated in the first century. So the Pharisee is pointing at it and saying, you know, at least I'm not like that guy. And, he, and so the irony is so often we want to be, well, at least I'm not like that tax collector. Of course, hopefully you catch the irony in such a thought that when we say at least I'm not like the tax collector or think it, or, or say, when we say we're not like the Pharisee or think it, we are in fact like the Pharisee when we say that, or think it. See, the thing is, is that during the time of the Reformation, 
Really, it came down to two great ba- the great battle of two theologies. The theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. The theology of glory said that with your own will, with your own strength, you can draw yourself closer and closer to God. And, by the way, the theology of glory is very much still alive. There are many ways it manifests itself. You hear people say that if you just pray the right prayers, if you pray hard enough, if you give enough money to this ministry, you will never get sick. You will never, you'll be rich as could be. By the way, I'm going to tell you something. If you give me lots and lots of money, I promise someone will end up rich. It won't be you. Sorry, bad joke. But anyways, but I mean that's, but you know there are preachers that they do that. They promise that if you give them the money, that you'll be rich. And usually ends up, the only one that's rich is the preacher, and not you. But that is part of theology of glory. Theology of glory even sometimes manifests itself in, our mu- in some of our music. There's, there's a Babylon Bee article, which if any of you don't know, if you ever see a Babylon Bee article, it's satire. It's not a true story. It's comedy. But there's one where it made a comment about a a particular song where people constantly were begging to see God's glory. See, if you actually realize what that means, you're like, you don't want that because it says, the Babylon Bee article says, God answers command, entire congregation dead. If you see the whole, you cannot bear to see God's glory. Not in our sinful condition. But the theology, so often, like the Pharisee, we think we can bring ourselves to God and proudly say, Thank you, I'm not like this or that. I'm not like that guy. We want to convince ourselves that we are all right. Last week, at the jun- we, I took a few uh, junior high kids to the junior high youth gathering. And a conversation came up during our night devotions, and we talked about how you dress for church. Apparently, many kids have battles with their parents about what they are supposed to wear. Not that I think this is a surprise to anybody, but I'm going to let you on a secret. The Bible actually has no verse that tells you what to wear to church. In fact, if you're to look at John the Baptist, he was not exactly the best dressed person. He's wearing camel's hair. He, if he, he definitely was not what you consider nice dressed. The whole concept of dressing nice for church is a product of the Industrial Revolution. So in other words, for 1,800 years, no one dressed up for church. And all of a sudden, they started doing it at the Industrial Revolution. And the reason was, was because before the Industrial Revolution, people had two sets of clothes. You had the set of clothes that you wore for work. You had the set of clothes that you wore for everything else. And generally, the one that you wore everything else, that's what you wore to church. Because the work clothes were quite often covered in manure and whatever, and so you were saving people from that stench. But otherwise... 
You just wore what you wore for everything other than work. Well, when the Industrial Revolution happened, more and more people were having clothes upon clothes that they could wear. But the thing is, they could not wear the nice clothes during the week. The reason was they typically worked on the farms where they worked in factories. And that was not a place to dress up. And so what they decided was the one day of the week they thought they could do it was on Sundays. And so they dressed up, mainly because that's when they could. Well, the thing was, is G.K. Chesterton was one of the great theologians of the 1800s. Caution against such practice. And the reason is, is he was afraid that it would create a class warfare within the, in the church. In other words, it will give the, especially, and this is very relevant in the 1800s, because the 1800s is when we saw the start of the Salvation Army, the YMCA, a number of other organizations designed to combat against poverty because it was so severe. And he, so Chesterton was worried that it would give the impression that the poor were not allowed in church because they can't afford to dress up. Now, the thing is, is his concern actually has validity. I have a family member who I have many times tried to get them to go to church, and the reason they won't, I don't have anything nice to dress today. Because they have been taught their whole life, you have to dress a certain way, even though the Bible says nothing. Now, you should dress appropriately, but you don't have to dress up. If you want to, you can. There's nothing wrong against it, but it's also not a law. It's actually, ironically, when we make a law about it, we're actually being like the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees created laws that the Bible spoke nothing about. And so the argument usually is, is that I want to bring God my Sunday's best. That's usually the argument. You've got to wear your Sunday best. There's two problems with that. Either one, you think your best is pretty good and it's worthy of God. Or two, you don't think much of God and you want to give him your best even though you know it's not any good. Because your best, in comparison to what God wants, you could have a billion dollars and go have a mass shopping spree and got the nicest clothing you could find and it's still not going to be anywhere close to good enough for God. In fact, if you read in the Bible, he doesn't talk about what you wear physically. He even talks about that man focuses on, on the outward appearances, but not God. God focuses on the inner part. And the inner part, when we bring the very best of our inner self before the eyes of God, it is like a steaming pile of vomit. There is nothing good to it. When we want, we insist on this, when we insist on looking a certain way, it all is a part of how we all, in some degree, are like the Pharisee. We point out to the things that we are doing well. We point out to certain things. Don't, and God forbid, literally, 
God forbid, anybody notice who we really are. To look past the covering that we have created for ourselves. But in reality, we are the tax collector. We are the one, when the reality is that we cannot come to God. Because notice the tax collector, he is far off. He's in the corner. He is on his hands and his feet. His face is on the ground. He cannot even lift his eyes up to God to ask for mercy. Because he understands that he does not deserve to be in his presence. And neither do we. There's a reason why when you come up for communion, your posture is to kneel if you're physically able to. There's a reason why when we come up to the altar, the altar represents the presence of God. We always are to bow. This is even why if you go, I've talked about this before, if you go to Roman Catholics, they actually got something, I think, kind of wise. Whenever they enter the pew, what do they do? Genuflect. Now, if you don't have good knees, again, you don't want to genuflect, but at least bowing is appropriate. Recognizing we are like that tax collector. We don't deserve to come to the presence of God. We don't deserve to worship him. But see, this is the beauty, that's the beauty of the theology of the cross is that when the law of God has broken us down to our knees, has broken us down to nothing, when we have been utterly humiliated by the blood of Jesus on the cross, he comes to you in your humiliation. And see, God, he does not demand your best. Instead, he gave you his best. He gives you Christ. And so in the waters of baptism, last night we, had, we baptized four. And this is even something really cool when you have an infant. That baby is carried up. Kind of like the, in this gospel lesson, there's babies that are brought to Jesus. The baby is brought, and the parents had to speak, have to speak for them. They can't do anything of their own, on their own. And so the pastor says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as Galatians says, do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed in Christ? So in other words, the garment that is necessary, the garment that is spoken of in Jesus' parables. Remember the parable, the wedding banquet? If you're familiar with it, there's somebody that comes in with the, doesn't wear the wedding garment and he's thrown out. The wedding garment that is necessary is the garment of faith that was received at the proclamation of the word, that is received in the waters of baptism. It is received at the moment you came to faith. You received the garment in which you are clothed with Christ. See, as we are humiliated, he lifts us up. Those who humble themselves are exalted, are lifted up. And by the way, if you read through the book of Luke, that's pretty much the theme of it. It began with the Magnificat, Mary. My soul magnifies with the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And eventually it talks about those who are brought low will be exalted. 
And you read through it, you have Zacchaeus, the tax collector. You have, the, you have two cases of Samaritans who were hated and rejected by the Jews of the time. And they were being exalted. You have the thief on the cross who, was, who, was, who at first was mocking Jesus, but eventually had a turn of heart and said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, to which Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. All through the gospel of Luke, it's all about the lifting up the lowly, the broken. That is what the gospel is. Exalting the lowly, the broken. That you may exalt and lift up others with the same grace, the same gospel, and realize that you are just a beggar that knows where the food is. We're all beggars, desperate for the gospel. Your job is to say, hey, I'm, I need grace too. Let me show you where to get it. You get it from Christ and his cross and his mercy. To him be all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen. Well, those who are to receive into membership.